Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and how great is this rain? I mean, it has been a while since we had rain like this around the Bay Area. And with the rains come our tiny little fungal friends, the mushrooms that spring up in forests and backyards, potted plants, and dark corners. With all that's going on in the world, it might be easy to ignore the humble mushroom. But we're going to spend some time today talking about finding and foraging uh, mushrooms in the Bay Area, as well as their remarkable properties in nature and medicine. Joining us today are Tony Alvarez, member of the North American Mycology Association and leader of group foraging session sessions under his account, Shroomy Walkabouts. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you so very much for having me. We're also joined by Paul Stamets, a renowned and tireless advocate for the ingenuity and utility of fungi. Just a legend. Thank you for coming on, Paul. Oh, thank you so much. Honored to be here. Yeah. Paul, let's start with you. I mean, you've been advocating for the importance of fungi for decades now. Do you think that you've changed how people think about mushrooms and their role in the world? Well, it's not just me, you know, I'm, I'm a prominent figure, uh, but throughout, you know, the millennia, uh, there have been sort of the cognoscenti of, of mushroom knowledge keepers. Um, and these very thin uh, strands of knowledge have survived over time. What may surprise people is that we know which mushrooms are edible or poisonous from the experiences of people who ate them before us. Right. Um, that's actually not too extraordinary. That's how we know what plants are edible and what berries are edible and et cetera. So, um, but now mushrooms have seemed to become the zeitgeist of our time. And it's, uh, and I think a time critical moment in the evolution of the human species that we're discovering uh, these extraordinarily powerful organisms that literally exist under every footstep that we take. Yeah. I mean, you have uh, found and worked with, you know, thousands and thousands of mushrooms. Can you remember back to like, you know, you start out your career as a logger. Can you remember back to like, this is, this is the moment when I decided that these were marvelous, you know, creatures and organisms on earth. <laughs> I have lots of stories, but my earliest memory was, when I was about five years old, I was pelting my twin brother, his name is North, with puffballs as in, in Ohio in the summertime, the puffballs would emerge and I was pelting them when they're mature, they kind of explode with this brown cloud of spores. And I remember my mother coming out saying, don't throw puffballs at your twin brother, the spores will make him blind. And she went back in the house and I then up my game, so to speak, hit, uh, throwing more puffballs at my twin brother. Um, that actually is not true. Those spores won't make you blind, but that's my earliest memory. Hmm. And, you know, I, I 
don't like kick and pickers. I'll tell you right now, I'm very much offended by adults that do that, but I'm not too offended by children. Uh, children are constantly playing and to get them in contact with nature through mushrooms, the mushroom portal, so to speak, I think this has been a very valuable way of uh, getting a new generation of biologists inspired about nature and protecting the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We're talking about mushrooms, maybe even about you having moved through what Paul Stamets calls the mushroom portal. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Share a mushroom experience with us, finding one or learning about one. Or if you've got questions for Paul Stamets, number's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Tony Alvarez, um, you do a lot of your work here in the Bay Area, and my assumption really is that the rain has made this a, a an absolutely banner year for uh, mushrooms, but we're also getting the rain earlier than we normally do. So, so I don't know what's going on out there in the mushroom world. Wow. So uh, the rain has really um, set off the bloom. It, like, honestly, like I've never seen before in other years. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the fires, the cleaning of, of a lot of the, the forest floors of debris. I'm not exactly sure what's causing it, but the, the blooms have been, astounding so yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's been incredible it's, i can say so much more but it there's so no many no keep I going use. keep going is, is it true all yeah. across the region is it the same kind of mushrooms that we normally see or different ones you know it's it's uh, i'm actually seeing some mushrooms that are not that i've never seen in the bay area i've only seen them up north uh, northern california eureka um even the humboldt area uh, and I'm just seeing them in abundance. I mean, in, in an overabundance. So it's been really, really beautiful to see these things at work and all playing their part in this beautiful ecosystem. Yeah. Tony, how did you go through the mushroom portal? Like, how did you end up um, being someone who's part of the North American Mycology Association? <laughs> well, um, I, when I was a, a lot younger, I've always spent time in nature. Um, I spent a lot of time alone when I was very young. Um, so I kind of was left to my own devices, picking up rocks, turning over rocks, finding little mushrooms and, what, and whatnot. Um, the mushroom connection really hit when I was in my teen years and I was uh, gifted some magic mushrooms. <laughs> and that is how I went through my portal. And the connection with the mushrooms was, was so strong from that moment on. But, you know, life continues and and we kind of move away from our passions. I was very passionate about it when I was young and uh, kind of lost touch with it. And then I took a foraging course about, you know, seven, eight years ago. And it just brought me back to that child, my inner child. And I really was just overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed with, with love for these, these beautiful creatures that give us so much and do so much for us. And all we do is show up. And they give us so much. It's, it's incredible. So, I yeah. Over Let's the past seven years, it's been full bore. That's cool. Let's bring in Alicia from Oakland into our conversation. Welcome, Alicia. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for joining so, us. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, Paul, I have a question for you. I have a junior in high school 
who watched Fantastic Fungi and has always liked mushrooms and now is determined to become a mycologist and wanted to know if you had any suggestions or advice for them. I thank you for that question. And I feel the field of mycology, I know of no other, no other biological science that has so much potential for good. And, uh, and by the way, Tony, thank you for sharing that story. That's really important that you did that. Um, I would recommend that, that the, uh, you join a mycological society. Uh, Tony is a part, as I am, of the North American Mycological Association. Uh, the website's namico.org, N-A-M-Y-C-O.org. That's the national uh, U.S., Mexico, and Canadian uh, association that is sort of a conglomerate of all the mycological societies. Hmm. But you've got four, five really good mycological societies in the Bay Area. So I would encourage her to join a mycological society. What's cool about mushrooms, it crosses cultures and continents. Um, we benefit from the... Uh, ethnical uh, uh, knowledge of people from different regions of the world who who come here with their knowledge of, of mushrooms. And so it's a great groups to be involved in. There, there's the Mycological Society of San Francisco. There's the Bay Area Mycological Association. Uh, up north, there's the Sonoma Mycological Association, the Mendocino Coast Mushroom Club. Um, and then... Uh, you know, KQED goes all the way down to Santa Cruz and there's a Santa Cruz Mycological Society. So there's, there's, wow. there's many mycological societies that you can become a part of. And, you know, we oftentimes say it's like an adult Easter egg hunt. Um, and, <laughs> but, but children are closer to the ground, um, you know, and you're re they're rewarded with your attention. You cannot be poisoned by a mushroom by touching it. However, the caution that all of us mycologists want to give, give you is there Thank are you. some deadly poisonous species out there. Do not randomly go out and pick mushrooms. If they look that they're edible, uh, they may not be. They could be actually deadly poisonous. So you need to know your species. And it's not hard to learn which species to avoid and which species that are, um, that are most high, the highest culinary or medicinal properties. So um, it's, it's a great uh, society of individuals. I've been involved in the Mycological Society since I was about 15 years of age. And um, I highly recommend that you be surrounded by, by others who have this knowledge because the body intellect of knowledge of two or 300 people in these Mycological Society is encyclopedic. Mm. Um, so, and I'd be remiss not mentioning the, I think the most prominent mushroom field guide um, which is uh, California Mushrooms, and uh, by Dennis Desjardins, Michael Wood, and, and Fred Stevens. And so this is a, a 750 species are covered. I highly recommend uh, getting that book. Um, and then uh, David Aurora's Mushrooms Demystified is also a, just a, a treasure that many of us still use. So um, I hopefully that will give you some lead-ins to, to uh, you know, enter into the field of mycology. Are there particular species that are maybe very charismatic, but that would be very bad for people to take? Like, I think about, you know, one time I was running in Sibley, um, the, a, a regional park here, and saw an entire field of Amanita mascara. I think of these as kind of the Super Mario Brothers uh, mushroom. You know, they've got a red cap with sort of white uh, dots. And I think those in particular, uh, for example, are, are quite dangerous, yeah? I have intimate experience with Amnita muscaria. Um, 
uh, it is not really a deadly mushroom, except it can actually put you into a coma-like state and you could die from hyperthermia um, mm. if you're unconscious outside in the woods. Um, and it has been known to kill small animals, but typically not uh, people, few and far between, if any. But Amnita muscaria um, is a, a mushroom that has a long history of use in Asia. If, the, if it's put into water and boiled several times, the water is discarded, you can detoxify it. Um, and that's a, a traditional use. We advocate people do not eat this mushroom. Um, I've eaten it several times. It causes a very strange response uh, called repetitive motion syndrome. Um, and this is something mm. where you, where you can't separate thought from action at high doses. So you have no filter. Um, and then in my case, I dropped my camera maybe 200 times. Each time I pick up my camera, I thought, did I just drop my camera? Then I dropped my camera again. Um, this created quite the consternation of a group of tourists who are watching me from afar, holding <laughs> under their children closely to their breast, <laughs> afraid of what they were watching. Um, but yeah, I can't say that sounds pleasant, Paul. No, it's, it's an accident. But there is a group um, that are, are exploring this for its medicinal properties mm. at low doses. And, and the difference between a toxin and a medicine oftentimes is dose. Uh, mm. That's, that's the common in medicine. So amnidomiscary, all of these are miniature pharmaceutical factories that have a whole slew of compounds that interface with human and ecological health in the most unique ways. So they're powerhouses of, of uh, potential new pharmaceuticals and new medicines. Um, and I, I believe the mushrooms and mycelium, the, the filamentous structure that gives rise to the mushrooms are the immune system of the planet. Uh, these are the interface between life and death and they, and they grow through the soil, they set up microbiomes and guilds of other collaborative organisms. And these communities then thrive and exchange nutrients and help the ecosystem for the benefit of us all. You know, I wanted to ask you about that a little bit. You know, I know that there's a new organization called the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, which is trying to actually map the very kind of underground ecosystems that you're describing. Do you think that kind of effort could let people really sort of understand the crucial role that these fungi play in just about every ecosystem on Earth? Absolutely. It's, a, it's something that we need to pay attention to. This is a, these are the organs that create soil, folks. Without soil, we don't have food, we don't have life. And in fact, we've received a, a grant from NASA for terraforming other planets using fungi um, and, and basically creating soil from asteroids or, or Martian soils uh, because fungi create soils. And so this is the fundamental to the very foundation of life. Uh, without fungi, we don't have life um, on, uh, as we know it. And um, these are fundamental uh, for all of the food webs from humans to bees to, to birds to, to you know, all sorts of other uh, organisms, microscopic and macroscopic. So we've got uh, a question from uh, Karina in Los Gatos. Welcome. Well, hello. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for being here, too. Um, my question is that <clears throat> um, coming from a background of biology and mushroom foraging and foraging in general, um, and thinking a lot about how we relate with nature and what we give back to nature when we take from it, I would love to hear you talk about any movements or thought 
in the mushroom community right now about when we go and we harvest mushrooms, are we supposed to leave a trace? Do we let people know we've harvested 10%? Do we let people know we've harvested 50%? Because then when the next person comes around, how do we ensure that we haven't harvested 100% of the mushrooms as this foraging gains popularity? What a great question. Paul? That's a fantastic question. And I don't have a good answer for you because I very much believe that you should leave no trace. It's very disturbing, frankly, to go into a forest and find a whole bunch of, you know, part of picked mushrooms or discarded mushrooms, you know, somebody was there before you. It kind of erodes from the, the spiritual experience of being in, in nature and discovering the wonders of nature, you know, first, you know, with her family, et cetera. So I believe in leave no trace. Um, the adage amongst many of us uh, who are c- conservation oriented is not to pick more than 10% of the mushrooms. Um, and, and with the chanterelles, we know they come up in twins uh, oftentimes. So we cut one of them rather than pull them, because when you pull them, you can abort one of the twins. Uh, so it's a very comp- it's a great question with a, a, not a clear answer. Um, but yeah, conservation is really important. Um, unfortunately, some of these mushrooms are viewed as dollar bills on the ground uh, by commercial mm-hmm. harvesters. They want to pick up all the dollar bills, all the mushrooms. Uh, those of us who are collecting just for our family and friends we may get two or three, four pounds of chanterelles, but we're not getting a hundred pounds. Um, that being said, subsistence foraging of mushrooms is a, a long held tradition in indigenous cultures all around the world. Uh, David Aurora studied this extensively and it's really debatable uh, still to this day, the impact of harvesting. When you pick a mushroom folks and you carry it, it's like fairy dust, you leave spore trails and so as you carry the mushroom, like, you know, miles, you're creating spore trails that extend the habitat of those mushrooms. So you can make the argument that harvesting mushrooms actually spreads their spores. Mm-hmm. And you can make the counter argument. If you harvest all the adults, there's less spores there to spread. So is it, the jury is out yeah. uh, on this you know, you, you mentioned cutting one of the chanterelles. Is, you know, a, a listener asks whether... How to how to pick without damaging the roots? Just to, before we go to the break here, um, if if cutting is generally considered to be a, a good strategy, or if normally they'd just be picked in whole. Well, cutting for a culinary culinary purposes generally is thought to be better. However, for identification purposes, you need the base of the stem mm. with many species. So, if you're collecting for taxonomy and for science and for mushroom clubs, yeah, we want to see the entire mushroom. Uh, if you're collecting for the table, um, then I would say the majority of mycologists now are deferring to uh, trimming the mushrooms very close to the ground and then leaving them there. Because if you pull the mushroom out, you create a divot. Um, and there's a, it's questionable whether that divot, that hole uh, penetrating into the mycelium um, could, could be a vector of, of parasites. So again, the jury's not out, folks. And what I just said was a fairly controversial statement. There'd be many, many foragers that will disagree with me. <laughs> We're talking about the huge mushroom blooms around the Bay Area and the importance of fungi in our ecosystems. We're trying to get Tony Alvarez, member of the North American Mycology Association, back on the line. And we are joined by Paul Stam. It's a renowned and tireless advocate for fungi. You can give us a call with your questions. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. We'll be right back 
after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about mushrooms. They are blooming all over the Bay right now. We're talking about the importance of the fungi in our ecosystems with Paul Stamets, uh, who you may know from documentaries, TED Talks, as a mycologist really dedicated to mushrooms, and Tony Alvarez, who is the leader of a group, uh, foraging uh, group under his account, Shroomy Walkabouts. Got some comments coming in from listeners. Gordon writes, I am a Bay Area mycologist based in Napa. I love the coast this time of year for the winter trio, and I'm excited for the internal valley oak chaparral habitat to come alive. Uh, And Tony Alvarez, can you tell us about what people might find if they go out to the coast right now? So if you're heading to the coast, can can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, fantastic. So going out to the coast, you're going to find lots of chanterelles, um, lots of oyster mushrooms, as they need a lot of moisture. There's lots of deciduous trees in these areas. So there's a a trove of so many goodies, candy caps. I mean, you you name it. There's so many. I could go through a huge list, but it's it's definitely blooming like, like no other year I've seen. Let's bring in uh, Claire from Sacramento. Actually, wait, one more thing. Uh, what's the winter trio that the listener was writing about? Is that chanterelles, winter, oyster? Chanterelles, oysters, and I think porcini's bolets. I think that's what they're talking about, the winter trio. That's neat. Okay, Paul, cool. you got anything? Paul, are you familiar with that uh, phrase? <laughs> No, I'm not. Okay, I, 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 I defer to Tony on, on his expertise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've never actually heard the, the winter trio, but I'll go, I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring in uh, Claire from, uh, from Sacramento. Hi. Yeah, I, so I work in wildfire, and I'm really curious about the relationship between fire and the, the mycorrhizal network in the soil and, you know, what the different effects are of a really high-severity wildfire coming through versus maybe some good intentional fire on the ground and whether mushrooms and the, the network below the soil need fire or how they, how they interact with that, especially as fire in California has been changing so quickly for us. Mm, great point. Uh, Paul Stamets? I would defer to Dennis Desjardins. He actually has uh, studied this specifically. He's a professor at San Francisco State. Um, And, um, you know, fire is a natural part of the ecosystem, the evolution of ecosystems. Uh, What is not natural is human habitation. Uh, And as we expand our population and displace the ecosystems that that interface, we're going to have conflicts. And so fires today, people are concerned about their houses um, you know, and, and preserving their property and their personal wealth. Um, and so we have this unfortunate conflict of interests, uh, the interests of the ecosystem long-term over millennia versus that in, your, in, in our lifetime. So 
Um, I, I, it is a subject that is ripe with dispute. Uh, there is facts going in both directions, um, but forest fires in general, in uh, in you know, in in force, uh, are known to be beneficial over the long term. Um, in the short term, of course, it's a tragedy that affects in, uh, people's lives and um, and can can kill people. So you have this natural conflict between a natural system versus a quote unquote unnatural system. That, albeit, we can make the argument that humans are native. Uh, to, to the environments in which we're, we live. Uh, never let, I, I, I defer to Dennis on this. Uh, please contact Dennis Desjardins. He studied this subject extensively. Yeah. And you, one imagines that the fire heats up the ground, but maybe that underground uh, is, is protected further down, yeah? Oh, very much uh, so. And what's so interesting in the fire habitats, so one of the first mushrooms to come up are morels. Uh, and morels seem to be everywhere in the forest, but they only produce mushrooms, typically the fire burn morels, only after a fire. And they're very fragrant. So they, they, they attract animals uh, that come in, and, you know, deer, squirrels. Uh, and by, so by, because they're fragrant, because these other animals eat the mushrooms, then they're attracted into these ecologically devastated ecosystems. They consume the mushroom, they drop pellets, they drop seeds, et cetera. So these are the harbingers of, of ecological recovery. I think the morels are, are the first en- uh, appearance of an edible uh, food for wild animals. Thus, they bring the wild animals in, they bring in seeds, and at least ecological recovery. Hmm. Let's bring in Steve from San Francisco. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, Happy New Year, and I um, hope all is well. Um, I got I got a question. I, I get the feeling I know the answer to it, but I, I got to ask it anyway. An older friend of mine um, from France is telling me that there's a service in France that the pharmacist uh, will will produce will provide that if you bring in some wild mushrooms, she'll uh, or she'll she will uh, you know pull out tell you if you can eat them. <laughs> wow, right. that's yeah. gotta love so France, you know. Candy is—is is there any such a thing here in the United States? I, I'm—I get the feeling no. Yeah, Tony Alvarez, do you know for the Bay Area? I—I I, I don't believe so. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it's—it's yeah, it's kind of pick at your own risk. It's eat at your own risk. I always tell people if you're not 100, percent don't do it. Leave it alone, and only take what you need. Because uh, yeah, it can be—it can be real treacherous. There's a lots of there's there's a few deadly ones out there that have duped people um and there's also cultural differences um with regard to you know i have some friends here that are from you know there's lots of russians here in the bay area and i was speaking with a fellow mycologist recently she was out at salt point and and watched an entire family picking death caps and she told them you don't want to eat those those are death caps and they just kind of nodded her off and she's like no 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 don't eat those so, you know, there's, there's, I think it's a, it's a, it takes a tribe to raise a child, as they say, you know, so we all need to pitch in. If you see something, you know about it, tell people, don't let them take it home so they can feed it to their family. But there's no kind of service like that, that would around that. here. You know, Paul no. uh, Stamets, we also have a uh, listener comment. Um, Lorinda asks, our grandchildren are very interested in exploring the many mushrooms growing in our habitat type yard. Their moms don't want them touching mushrooms because they're afraid the mushrooms can hurt them. You kind of mentioned this earlier, but 
Uh, I, I wanted you to address her question, which is, do they need to wear gloves or wash their hands afterwards, or how should they think about handling these mushrooms? No, there's a, there's in North America, there's virtually no danger from touching a mushroom. And I, in fact, um, my, my daughter, when she was five years old, uh, she would sometimes uh, pick Galerana marginata, which is a deadly poisonous mushroom. And, and I, I would, I was, oh my gosh, Ladina, that, that's most one of those deadly poisonous mushrooms in the world. And I, but I always told my kids, you always must cook mushrooms and only daddy and mommy cook the mushrooms. And so that actually, they never thought about eating mushrooms raw because they knew they had to be cooked. Uh, so you, yeah, I would encourage, you know, you know, children are natural contrarians. They're going to rebel against the parents. So um, I think um, don't make mushrooms, you know, just this, this threat that they could, you know, um, that in, enjoy the fact that the children discover something that's so powerful um, that uh, that's that shared excitement, even if something that ostensibly could be dangerous if ingested, they're not dangerous at all just by collecting them and, and touching them. Yeah, we're talking about the huge mushroom season that's occurring here in the Bay Area with Paul Stamets, uh, mycologist and renowned advocate for fungi, as well as Tony Alvarez, uh, member of the North American Mycology Association and leader of group foraging sessions. You can find his account, Shroomy Walkabouts. Wanted to add Janet from Sebastopol into the conversation. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Thanks for joining us. Great. Um, yeah, um, Paul Stamets, I'm a huge fan. Um, I studied mycology at San Francisco State under Harry Tears. You might know him. Um, anyway, um, my understanding, you were speaking a little while ago, about foraging and about potentially wiping out a colony if it got too, um, you know, picked over. Um, my understanding is, is that when a mushroom sprouts, it deposits its spores. Um, I can understand and does it immediately. So therefore keeping those mushrooms alive in that spot. Um, I can understand if they're being dug out and they haven't yet popped, but am I incorrect in that information? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, mushrooms, they're, as they mature, sporulation increases. So when they're really, really young, they're not producing hardly any spores. When they're, they're mid-adolescent to adolescent-shaped, um, um, they're producing a maximum number of spores, and then when they're fully mature, they don't. But more interestingly to me is they become a food resource for many other organisms in the ecosystem. So rotting mushrooms uh, pro uh, provide an ecological benefit in feeding the food uh, chains of bacteria and other fungi. And so we should not have this utilitarian uh, viewpoint, I think, of just looking at the, the purpose and value of mushrooms just for human consumption. They're, they're providing a very critical role in the ecosystem. And I mentioned the microbiomes, and this is an area I'm, I'm fascinated with the, the mycelium becoming superhighways for bacteria, um, sending bacteria long distances, which they otherwise these motile bacteria can barely you know, cross a few centimeters and over a great uh, time period. With the mycelium, they can use them as superhighways. And so this, these, as these mushrooms rot with other fungi, you are setting up these bacterial communities and the microbiomes that can be so beneficial to the ecosystem. 
Um, and by so, when when you're talking about just for people who who aren't familiar with some of the the terminology, the mycelium are the networks of fungi of like fungal organism that are all kind of uh, knitted together, right? After this interview, I encourage anyone to go outside, find a piece of wood on the ground that's been on the ground for a few months, tip it over. It mycelium is everywhere, and it's estimated up to eight miles per uh, in a single cubic inch. Think of that. These filamentous uh, cells are so thin, but so pervasive, they're all around us. Um, and so they're, they're not, not invisible. They're, they're, you can't see them on top of the ground typically, but just below the surface, there's mycelium everywhere. Wow, that's so fat. I mean, and this has been, for people who want to check out sort of your uh, broader arguments, um, they could check out your book, Mycelium Running. They could, there's, there's other resources for people who want to uh, continue to follow up on, uh, on a lot of the research that you have both done and inspired uh, into this realm. Wanted to bring in uh, Jacob from Marin. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, my dad was a, a firm believer in sort of like interconnectedness of life. And recently we buried him in a green burial site at, out here. And part of that was, you know, me thinking of, you know, what I had read from you on mycelium and, and the sort of being that interconnected web uh, underground. And recently after the rains, I saw that there was some mushroom sprouting. And I was just curious what your thoughts on green burial are and, and their ability to break down, you know, matter, all matter, uh, humans too, and, and, and if you want to, get into the afterlife too, um, and, and that sort of interweb of connectedness. Thanks. Yeah. Paul, wow. that's such a fascinating question. And, I, and if I may, wow. I, have you thought about that for yourself whenever that time comes, hopefully very far into the future? Yeah, I, I want to be entombed in mycelium. Um, face it, folks, we have to embrace decomposition. <laughs> We're all going to get there, um, and from which we came as well. So um, the um, I have a phrase I, I, I use a lot, let it rot. You know, um, we have this sort of, this Elizabethan, if I could blame Elizabeth, <laughs> the view of nature, making it all clean and, and yards, spick and span, et cetera. You know, it's, it's that, it's, it's that, neighbor who has that chaotic environment that has all these debris fields and brushes and all these micro niches and these, these highly fractalized environments at different orders of magnitude spatially give these habitats to all these organisms. And so you know, this, this, the concept here is, you know, we all will decompose into soil. And this is, speaks to indigenous knowledge and the belief that the soil is, is a living organism, that our ancestors, you know, are, are part of the food crops that we ingest. And I, I think um, my destiny ultimately is I want to be in, entombed uh, in the mycelium of a mushroom called agaricon. Uh, hmm. It's an old growth species of mushroom that exclusive of the old growth forest that has extraordinarily an, uh, strong antiviral properties. And so the oldest living, uh, biggest living mushroom in the world this is one other com competing species, um, but it lives over a hundred years in the old growth forests of Northern California, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia. So I hope to be entombed and it produces this amazing felt like mycelium that could be three, four feet long um, of this, of this fabric of mycelium you can just peel off. And so it's very appropriate to be enshrouded literally into the mycelium of agaricon. 
just beautiful to hear someone who still decades after beginning to study these things maintains such like un unbridled enthusiasm for your field of study. I, honestly, it's it's quite inspiring. Uh, you know, a st- couple things to uh, mop up from earlier. Stephanie writes the commenter referring to the winter trio was likely talking about black trumpets, hedgehogs, and yellowfoot chanterelles. Um, another question for you, Paul Stamets, is uh, Bill asks, is it true that you don't eat anything with a vented underside? With a what? A vented underside. No. Got no, it. no, not true. Uh, we, uh, there is species specificity. What I mean by that is you have to know your species of mushrooms and there's not a, any universal rule um, it used to be said if a mushroom turns a sil- silver spoon black, you know, it was, it was poisonous or something. That's not true. Um, no, you have to know your individual species. Even in the gen- genus Amanita in California, there's some edible species and there's a very deadly species. Uh, so you, 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 there's no general rule for identification of edible mushrooms versus poisonous ones. Perfect. Um, last thing, kind of a funny one. Pete tweets... Did the Star Trek Discovery writers, the show, name the mycelial network navigator after you, Paul Stamets? Yes. Um, yes, they did. <laughs> the, the, the writers of Star Trek literally called me up saying, we're in the dungeon. We saw your TED talk. We're stuck. Do you have any ideas? And I said, turn on your tape recorders. And they taped me for about two hours. And I talked about the mycelium um, this universal structure we see in nature of neurons, the computer internet, the mycelium, uh, dark matter. Uh, this is a continuum of, of the fact that networks reward themselves. Um, and I told them I always wanted to become the first astromycologist. And they said, astromycologist? Oh my gosh, we can use that. And so they consulted with me as recently as last week. Um, and I'm really honored uh, Anthony Rapp that portrays me. And um, and they, of course, the, the, I, I gave them the spores for this idea. They germinated in these writers' minds. And of course, they get 99.9% of the credit for this. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm greatly honored. I've been a Star Trek fan since I was a kid. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm greatly surprised and honored uh, that they named a character after me. Yeah. Very last thing, Pamela comments, can your guest comment on the negative impacts on our parklands and wildlands by foragers who go off trail? How can people make sure that they do this respectfully just as we close up the show? Uh, can I defer to Tony on that one, Tony? Yeah, I, w- I would say the, the so this is part, it's partly stewardship. So when we go out, there's a bag for mushrooms. There's also a bag for garbage. That's what I do on all my walkabouts. We're, we're stewarding the land as we're finding these goodies. So all of us should do our part and clean up, uh, make sure that we leave minimal to no traces that we were ever there um, and and love the, love the earth like it loves us. That's the only way I can put it. Thank you. We have been talking about mushrooms here in the Bay and their importance in our bodies and ecosystems with Tony Alvarez, member of the North American Mycology Association. You can find his account, Shroomy Walkabouts, and Paul Stamets. You can find his talks and books like Mycelium Running. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Scott Schaefer. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.